Good morning, Riverstone. It's an honor to have been asked to actually share the word with you, of God with you this morning. And if I can keep things even half as engaging as our gifted pastors do with the word, then I'll consider that a small accomplishment. Or at the bare minimum, if I can at least avoid what one woman once said about her preacher, she said, you know, I never see the eyes of my preacher because when he prays, he has his eyes closed. And when he preaches, he has my eyes closed. So here's the hoping that I don't help you catch up on your sleep this morning. All right, today we're going to take a look at the book of Haggai. Haggai, chapter 1. If you have your Bible on you, open up to Haggai 1, or if you're like me, turn on your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible at all, please ask one of the ushers. They can certainly give you a Bible. But if you don't know where that is, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. That's where Haggai is. So as you guys are finding your ways there, let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing on our time this morning. Our Father in heaven, you are indeed holy, and we ask that you would help us this morning to have our eyes and minds fixed on your word and on your son, Jesus. Help us remove the distractions in our hearts and minds, as important as they may be, so that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit has for us in your word. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, show of hands. How many of you are currently students right now? Currently students. Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. How many of you have ever been students at least at one point in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, that's, that's a lot of people. But for the people who never raised their hand at all, I'm a little concerned about you because at this point, I might have to, after the service, might have to call a local school truancy officer to have them come track you down to figure out where you've been all these years. By trade, I'm a high school science teacher, and now every now and then I have to administer exams. So you want to hear something shocking? In all these years I've been teaching, I've yet to have one student come up to me to thank me for how wonderful of a time and a blessing it was to take one of my exams. Can you believe that? Shocking. I mean, kids these days. Well, the majority of students, I think, they, they typically look at, at taking exams as, as a hurdle they have to get past when they're in school. But how many of them actually realize the real purpose behind taking exams? Well, here's a hint. It's to offer exam, the exams offer the opportunity for them to examine where they currently stand or meeting the targeted learning goals of the course. It's another way to reveal to students where they currently stand and give them an opportunity to assess where they are and make necessary corrections. To put it more succinctly, exams give students opportunities to examine their ways and to consider their ways. And as a church, we've just gone through a series about what it means to be a church on mission. And, and God's people have to regularly be doing what students do, to assess where we currently stand in regards to what's important. You know, this kind of self-examination, and we're going to take a look at it in, in Haggai this morning. You know, God may not give us exams, but he does bring about promptings to examine our ways through life circumstances or even through the words of others that speak into our lives. And again, as a church, if we're going to be a church that glorifies God and worships him together, or a church that's committed to discipleship and to accountability with one another. Or a church that has the goal of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ by making disciples who make disciples. If we're going to do all that, then we're going to have to examine our ways as a church and as individuals from time to time. And so that's precisely what God is going to tell his people here in Haggai to do. And so 
We're going to take a look at Haggai this morning. God's going to ask them to examine their ways so as to put them back on the path they should go. So the way I'm going to teach is I'm going to break things up into chunks. We're going to start off with the first four verses here. I'm going to read the first first four verses, and then we'll go on from there. So chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house still lies in ruins? All right, well, we have a lot of names given here, even a very specific date in the first verse of the whole book. So it might be a good time for us to just to take a little grasp of the background. Amazingly, scholarship has been able to pinpoint the date that's given here as to being August 29th, 520 B.C., so just a few months ago, we passed the 2,543rd anniversary of this prophecy. I'm sure you all remember to celebrate. Now, such a precise date of this book is actually pretty important for establishing the authenticity of this prophecy. In other words, it's another reminder for us that God's word, it can be trusted, that the things we're reading about here in Haggai actually happened. Now, this is taking place a couple hundred years after where we just left off in the book of Jonah, if you remember a little while back. At this point, Israel has long had an established covenant with God that we find in Deuteronomy. Blessings to God's people for their obedience to him and his commands, and, of course, judgment for their disobedience. And Israel's gone through a successive cycles of infidelity, and then judgment, and then repentance, and then restoration, only for that cycle to repeat again and again and again. And, of course, God would send prophets every now and then to call his people back to repentance. And where we are here is actually after one of those difficult moments in Israel's history, because it comes after one of those times in which God judges his people of Israel. And I just want to do a quick overview, though, of this current situation that we have here in Haggai. So the Israelites, they've been sent into exile because the Babylonian Empire had sacked Jerusalem, burnt down the, the temple, and then sent them into exile. But the Persian Empire would come along, and then they would conquer Babylon, and the, the, uh, the king of Persia at that time, King Cyrus, he actually issued a decree to allow the Jewish people to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple. But the problem was only a few people, a remnant, actually returned to Jerusalem. And so they went on with starting to rebuild the temple until they came up against politically well-connected enemies, and it stopped the rebuilding of the temple project for a while. Up until this point, we have here Haggai is called by God. Now, remember studying Ezra and Nehemiah last year? We spent a long time in those two books. Well, basically, we're right here at the beginning of Ezra. That's where we are here in Haggai. Now, just understand for, for now, though, that this whole part of the world was ruled by the king of Persia, who is now King Darius. And, however, what's more important for us, though, is the Jewish leadership, the Jewish community here. The, the leaders, they're led by, or, sorry, the leaders are Zerubbabel, who's the governor, and also, we have Joshua, the high priest, and of course, we have Haggai, God's prophet, sent to these people to reform the religious community, starting with the leadership. So that's a bit of background. All right, so what is Haggai here commissioned to say by God? What's he commissioned to say? Some hard things. Real talk, as the kids say these days. Despite the fact that one of the main reasons why they were returning to Jerusalem in the first place was to rebuild the temple, 
The folks here, they've been preoccupied not with rebuilding a temple, but of what? Of their own houses. And so God is, pro- is saying, I'm correcting you because of your wrong priorities. He's rebuking them. And so they've been enduring some hard times, of course, and we'll see that, but they still have the ability and time and resources to build what are called paneled houses, roofed-in structures, kind of things that were probably pretty good to live in for the time. All the while, however, God's temple still lies in ruins. But don't get it twisted. It's not as though the people who are there in Jerusalem thought that the rebuilding of the temple was something unimportant to them. No. They knew that it was important because the believers of the Old Testament viewed the temple as the visible representation of God with his people, his presence with his people, I should say, on earth. And so they knew that, and they knew it had to be rebuilt. They wanted it to be rebuilt, so that wasn't the issue for them. So what was the problem? Why were they not rebuilding it? Well, it's because the timing of the rebuild was inconvenient for them. What God was calling them to do was inconvenient. So I could just picture some of them praying, Lord God, I, I know you want this temple to be rebuilt, but I have this family and we need a house, you know? Let me ask you this. Do you ever find it inconvenient to do the thing that you know that the Lord will have you to do? Do you ever find it inconvenient? That small group Bible study or the women's group or men's group or a youth group that meets in the evenings when you can be at home relaxing finally after a hard day of work. Or there's a very specific ministry here at church that needs your volunteerism more than it needs your donations. Or maybe you've been asked to consider mentoring a younger believer, but that younger person can only meet with you when your, your child has a game or a recital. Well, you know what? You can actually invite that person along with you. Or there's someone you've met at school or someone you've met at work or someone you met new in the neighborhood and you just get the inkling that you should befriend them. So maybe perhaps one day you can share the good news and, and, and truth of Jesus with them. But the problem is that's going to require your, some going out of your way to do. And from personal experience, I know it's easier to remain on the sidelines there. Or how about a different context? Let's say you have a hard deadline at work or a quarter you got to meet and your boss is hounding you about it. And, you know, if you just kind of cut a few corners there and a few corners here, you know, in a shady kind of way, it would help make your boss's life more convenient and your life more convenient. So win-win, right? How do we serve God with integrity there? How often do I make myself unavailable to God because I don't want to be inconvenienced? Well, back in August, Pastor Austin and I, we met in downtown Yardley, and he got coffee and I got tea because coffee tastes like liquid dirt from Mars. But at some point in the conversation, he goes to me, bro, because you know that's how he talks, bro, I have this idea in my mind, I got you penciled in for preaching around Thanksgiving time. I'm like thinking in my mind, like, bro, I don't know about that. I'll be taking a class at Karen at the time. I got a full-time job in the daytime. Then my nights are consumed by family and, and with seminary work. So I'm like, bro, can we just push it off? Because I had to talk with like that to him, right? Bro, can we just push it off to, you know, the new year? And then it just so happened that I was working on this very sermon for another church. And here I'm going to be preaching to people. God's going to call you to do things when it's inconvenient for you. Oh, you know how that thing called conviction works sometimes, right? So I got on my phone a couple days later, and I text him. I go, bro, I got to practice what I'm preaching, so I'll make myself available. I'm there. And here I am, 
kind of tired, and maybe I should take up drinking liquid dirt after all. But you may not have opportunities to preach. However, even this afternoon or maybe sometime tomorrow morning, God will call you to serve him in some way that might be inconvenient for you. My point in sharing this with you is not to self-righteously pat myself on the back, no, but rather to explain how serving God can often be inconvenient. Obedience can often be inconvenient. It's often sacrificial and requires something from you. Now, if doing ministry or serving God in any capacity, whether here or elsewhere, if, if you know, that was a deal breaker or inconvenience to do that, would, would service to God and ministry ever get done? No. If you don't mind, let me be more specific with you here. What is your role in the body here at Riverstone? Your role. What is it? Think about the church on mission series that we just went through. Is he trying to call you to do anything here? Has he been trying to call you? Have you had any inklings? With everything we just learned about our identity as a Christian church, do you find yourself able to participate in what matters to God, especially around here? Look for opportunities that are regularly presented to us here at the church, and, and then be available. Be available. Now, the people here in Haggai, they had some legitimate reasons for delaying the rebuild of the temple, of course, at least from a human perspective. Times were not easy. Uh, perhaps they were waiting for more funds to come in from uh, wherever so they can have the resources to build the temple. Or maybe they were waiting for an official order to come down from King Darius to rebuild the temple because the original order was actually given by King Cyrus, who's not on the scene anymore. Or perhaps yet, maybe they even have theological reasons to give for delaying the rebuild. Maybe based on how they understood scripture, their, their expectation was that the Messiah would come through restore temple worship, all the while kind of forgetting about this temple thing that needs to be rebuilt. And we can be the same way, amen? We can have actual reasons to help us rationalize why I'm not ready or not yet for something that you otherwise know God would have you to do. Well, needless to say, none of these reasons are going to impress the Lord at all here. He's going to say to his people, get it done. You need to understand that your priorities are misplaced. That's what Haggai is, is, is saying to the people here. Their priorities are out of sorts, that they prioritize their own interests rather than the interests of the Lord. You know, in our own lives, isn't, isn't it true, isn't it the case that our, one of our biggest areas of struggle against sin is how we prioritize our lives? Isn't that the case? It really is if you think about it. Here's a proven question to consider in our own hearts here. How well can we articulate our, our, our reasons for why we want to vote for a particular candidate or our reasons for why our team's going to win today? Go Eagles. Or for why we have selected a particular uh, diet and exercise regimen in our lives. How well can we explain that to another person versus... How well can we give our reasons to another person for why Jesus, why we believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior? Now, what I'm, I'm not saying is this, there's nothing wrong, okay, with, with thinking about any of these things, but how we answer that question, what can we most passionately and most aptly be able to, to, to explain to someone else might reveal where our priorities may lay. Well, you know, this situation in Haggai, it tends to play itself out repetitively in 
the history of God's people. So as one commentator notes, he says that Haggai is just a foretaste of another situation that Paul describes in Philippians 2. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, because of folks here in Jerusalem, they're prioritizing the wrong things. God is going to correct them. He's going to correct them by what he's going to issue as a command to them to consider in the next section. So let's take a look at that next section. We're going to, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You have looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." Now, we're met here with the most famous line in all of Haggai, and it's stated twice so you know it's important. Consider your ways. Now, with the first usage, God is reminding us, is telling his people, hey, consider the desperate state that you find yourselves in. And then with the second usage, God is telling his people, and he's reminding them, that they have a covenant with him. And that this covenant that they have with God, they've broken. And so the difficulties they're currently facing are actually a result of breaking that covenant. And he's disciplining them. So how is God disciplining them? Well, the text says, God sovereignly sent a drought. Their crops fail. They don't even have enough food or water. And they don't have enough clothing provisions. And that bag filled with holes, that's an interesting metaphor, actually. The idea is that their wages are so puny that whatever money they do make... When they go to put it in their purse, it falls right through into the ground, never to be seen again. In other words, their economy stinks. That's what it says. Now, interestingly, this may be the earliest Bible reference to coin currency. It actually has nothing to do with the point of the sermon. I just thought I'd share that with you because next time you play Bible trivia, you'll win. Of course, though, God, he is in control of nature, and their entire agrarian economy is at the mercy of the climate. So why has God been specifically disciplining them this way? Well, the text tells us again. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Ouch. God is reminding his people that he judges sin. Hmm. They've been busy taking care of their physical priorities all the while neglecting what? Their spiritual priorities. The problem is not that their spiritual priorities aren't important or aren't priorities. That's not the issue. It's that they've not been looking after the most, their most pri important priority of all, and that is the cultivation of their relationship with their holy God, giving him his due first, bringing him glory. That's what they've been neglecting. And so, therefore, they're going to need to examine themselves. They're going to have to consider their ways. And so God's essentially telling his people this. When you hear my words and examine your ways, can't you see that the hardships you're currently experiencing are actually a result of your misplaced priorities, result of your disobedience? Can't you see that? I'm trying to get your attention here. 
That's what God is telling his people. Now, there's actually two different Hebrew words that we translate both as the word consider here. One incorporates this idea to set, to place, to direct toward, and the other encompasses the idea of the inner man, the mind, the heart. So the idea here for us to understand when it says consider is to really spend time doing some real self-introspection, to reflect very carefully and deeply on your ways. That would be on your journey, your, your customs, your manner of behavior, and that would include how you think and what you do. And speaking of journey, no, not the band. One everyday example comes to mind. Let's say you're on your journey to work, and you're in your car, and you're at a stoplight, and you're towards the back of the queue. And then the light goes green, and you fail to notice. Well, you know why? Because you're on your phone. And you're not worried, though, because you can make a right-hand turn at the light, and you can turn on red, and so it's fine. So as you kind of lollygag your way up, you fail to realize that the guy behind you is trying to get to work on time. He wants to get through that light before it turns red. And so as you're about to make a turn and light turns red, you can make a turn, but the guy behind you, because of you, is now stuck at the light. What does that make you? That makes you an inconsiderate driver. So maybe you need to consider your ways on the road, and maybe I need to consider my ways before I get so frustrated at drivers like you. Only kidding, sort of. Now, this is a Monday example. This is the Monday example of introspection. But what about self-introspection when it comes to more important matters like our spiritual lives? How often do we consider our ways there in the daily grind and routines of our lives? Are there ways in which we are being inconsiderate of God and what his priorities are? A little self-reflection, I think, can reveal a lot of things that we didn't realize were there beforehand because if you think about it, God's people here in Jerusalem, they didn't seem to realize that their priorities were misplaced until God called them to reflect on it. And we could be the same way, amen? You know what one of the hardest questions for me to answer is? Occasionally I've been asked this question. Hey, what's God been doing in your life lately? Have you ever been asked that question? And are you like me where you find it sometimes difficult to give an answer on the spot? It's awkward. Why is it so hard for me to give an answer sometimes to that question? Well, Maybe I'm not necessarily, you know, ignoring my relationship with God, but is it perhaps possible that I may not be doing enough reflecting on where I stand with my spiritual priorities? Am I alone in that? As we're going to see with the rest of this chapter, the best way to consider your ways is to do so in light of what God's Word teaches. Let me say that again. The best way to consider your ways is to do so in light of what God's Word teaches. And well... God's command in verse 8 is also going to be his solution to the folks, the problems that the folks here in Jerusalem are facing. God's essentially telling them this. Here's what your ways, your new ways should look like. Get rebuilding the temple. Do it. You need a way that's called obedience. It's actually really interesting on how God tells them to obey. He first tells them to go get wood. Why is that interesting? Well, if you picture in your mind what the temple is made of, so you picture the temple, you're picturing probably these huge stones. And if you do, you'd be right. It's mostly made out of that. But the thing is, that material, that stone, is readily available in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. You know what was not available around Jerusalem? Wood. And so any of the wood in the temple, they'd have to go far off to the hills where the forests are to retrieve the wood. And so God is telling them this. You're going to repent by going out and doing the hard part first. Remember just a few minutes ago how we talked about what God calls us to is not always convenient for us? 
Well, at the behest of Haggai, God's people in Israel, they take a look at their lives and examine their ways. And there's no way around it. They have no argument against Haggai. And through Haggai, God instructs his people on what they ought to do. And you know what happens? God's word to God's people has the intended effect that God has for it. The people assess their ways honestly. And it leads to genuine repentance, starting with the leadership. So, let's see how the rest of this chapter plays out, starting with verse 12. So, verse 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Well, that's a big turnaround. And what I can think can only be attributed to the grace of God here. The leaders and the people, they actually listen to Haggai's preaching. A dream come true for pastors. They actually listen and they repent. They turn away from their sin. That's what repentance means. They considered their ways and agreed with God that their ways were immoral, that their ways were inadequate. And so they changed their ways. They now obey God. And I love what God says in verse 13. He says, I am with you. Isn't that so like the Lord to say? Isn't it? Isn't God tender like a, with his people? See, God's people, they've been through a lot. They've even been in rebellion against God, but yet here they are. They're listening to God's word. They're believing and the repenting of their sins. And then God comforts them by reminding them of his presence with them. God is tender in how he deals with his people. He still comforts them even after they rebel against him. Now, speaking of people who really need to be comforted, I can't think of a person on earth more in need of immediate comfort than a newborn baby, especially as they're being delivered. Just think about that. They're sitting in the womb, okay, in that nice, comfortable, cozy, warm environment for nine months where they're constantly being fed free meals, and they love that, so they have that in common with college students. Uh, and then they're immediately thrusted out into this cold, cold, harsh, dry environment known as the world. It's a, truly a traumatic experience. I mean, I'm sure you all remember. But you know what doctors do almost immediately? They take that baby, they place it up high against the skin of the mother. Now, why do they do that? It's because that baby needs the comfort that comes with the presence of its mother. And you know what, friends? <laughs> you and I are just big babies. We need to know that God's presence is with us and sense him. Amen? What else we do? What we see in verse 13, I think, is a little reminiscent of what Jesus tells his disciples when he's about to ascend into heaven. He says, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. The Lord does not leave us to ourselves, praise God. Now, if you were to continue reading the chapter 2 of Haggai, you would actually notice that it is God's presence with his people that's going to guarantee their success at fulfilling their calling 
in this, in, despite the opposition that they're going to face. Now, verse 14, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua. But I want you to notice when this stirring up to do the will of God comes in a sequence of events of this chapter. It comes after the conviction of sin and the repentance. And what does that come after? Their, 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 sin, uh, their, their conviction of sin and repentance, what does that come after? Well, that comes after the preaching of God's word. And so I, I think here, this sequence of events is instructive for us. We're, we see the normal course of events that God uses even today and how he changes people's lives. We see God's word faithfully proclaimed to the people and preached to them. Then we see people considering their ways and they get convicted of their sins. The people then repent and turn away from their selfish, sinful ways. And then God stirs them up to action. And I think we see the same today. Now, how does God stir his people up to service, though? How does he do it? Well, in the New Testament, we would learn that it's God's Holy Spirit who would be involved with something like this. In fact, in Scripture elsewhere, it makes it clear that the Holy Spirit would have been involved the entire process. He'd be involved with communicating God's word to Haggai. He'd be involved with the conviction of sin in, their, in the hearts of the people in conjunction with the preaching of the word. And thus, he would also be involved with the stirring up of the people to action. You know what, perhaps at times we may, we may lament of the inactivity that we see of other people in the church, but worse yet, maybe even in our tendencies to be inactive and on the sidelines. But the work of God, of advancing God's kingdom here on earth, doing his will here on earth, won't truly happen unless it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who's causing the stirring in other people's lives, in fact, in on our lives, in our hearts as well. And it seems to please God to typically do his stirring as a result of faithful adherence to the word of God that the Spirit inspires. Biblically, there's a very real connection between the work of the Spirit and his word. And so, guys, that's why it's critical for us to be regularly taking in the word of God. That's critical. But you may say, Todd, you know, you don't understand my life. I'm busy. That's hard to do. Let me ask you this. Do you have a phone on you throughout the day? There are a lot of good Bible apps that are free. Even if you just, for two minutes, here and there throughout your day, read a few verses in context, read a few verses, meditate on it, that can be very helpful. Or if reading is hard to come by, there's a lot of Bible apps that are free that you can also listen to the Bible, maybe on your commute. Listening to the Bible, there's something profound when you do that, actually, even more so, I think, than reading at times. Or, if re, you know, if that's not your thing, that you maybe listen to podcasts of solid biblical teaching. Do you guys, do you know we have a podcast here at Riverstone? Do you know that? You should all have it on your phone because if you, if you let's say, you listen to Pastor Brian, uh, Pastor Austin, Pastor Jeremy all day long, listen to them on repeat, and if you do that, you know what's going to happen? Because they share so many personal stories from lives, you're going to get to know your pastors way more than you probably ever wanted to. So just some ideas to get the word into you. So if we want to see obedience to God's will in our lives and kingdom work advancing in our church, then we're going to have to be regularly having our minds renewed by the word of God, by the study and proclamation of it. Because it seems fitting to God to most often do his work through the, his word by the power 
of his spirit. So, ask the Holy Spirit to help you put this into practice. Now, you may say, how can I do all this? There seems like a lot of things you're telling me that I must do in order to obey God. That's hard. You know what? You'd be right saying it's hard. In fact, it's impossible for us to completely obey God on, on our own efforts, by our own abilities, because we are sinful, because we have, are by nature selfish, too selfish and too self-consumed with ourselves. So you may ask then, okay, if it's impossible for us to completely obey God, and that's his expectation, how can he expect us to do that which is impossible for us to do? How can he do that? How can he expect that from us? Well, when I was a teenager, my parents expected me to get a job. I know. It's a novel concept these days, but they expected me to get a job. And furthermore, they expected me to be able to then get to my job and back home on my own. That was their expectation of me. There's only one problem. I didn't have a car, and I didn't have enough money to pay for a car. So how was I supposed to meet their expectations? Well, they graciously bought me a car. They provided for me what I could not provide for myself in order to meet their expectations. And in a similar but much bigger way, God himself is the one who will provide for us what we need in order to accomplish his will, in order to meet his expectations. In a few weeks, what big holiday are we going to celebrate? Okay. Good. You guys are a little awake. Unlike the message that you're going to get from, you know, Hallmark movies, Christmas is actually about the, the God of the universe who became a man. He became one of us. Amen. He became one of us in order to make a way for us to be saved. Then this Jesus, he went on to live a perfect life of obedience to God, the very thing that you and I cannot do on our own. He did that for us. And because he never sinned, he was then able to go pay the penalty for our sin, to, uh, the, the, the debt that we owe to God, he paid that to God for us, for our sake. That was what the cross was all about. The very, pay, the very debt that we can't pay for ourselves, he did it for us. You see, that is how God himself provides for us the very thing that we cannot accomplish on our own. It's his gift to us. Now, how do we receive this gift? By believing in the one who died for your sins and rose again from the dead a few days later. By trusting in Jesus alone to save us from our sins, from all our wrongdoings. Now, at, if you do so, at that point, you do meet God's expectations. We can meet God's expectations for us by faith because of what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Not by how much we can obey him. And when you realize how much you have actually been forgiven, what's the only proper response at that point? Thankfulness. Obedience to God now becomes not about obeying out of fear or out of obligation, but rather out of thanksgiving. Your obedience becomes your thanksgiving. And then God gives us his Holy Spirit to all who believe to help us in our obedience. So what do we gather here from Haggai 1? Our priorities matter to God. Our priorities matter to God. And if you think about it, and how we prioritize our lives, that's completely interwoven with our obedience to him. 
No, we're no longer living under Old Testament times like Haggai is. And so there's no more direct you know, promise of material blessings for our obedience. In fact, you're probably going to experience opposition when you obey God at times. Remember our study in 1 Peter? But there still are blessings, aren't there? Aren't there? Of course there are. You see, when you honor God with your obedience and give him his first due as your first top priority, it tends to then set up all your priorities in your life in proper order as well. And I think even out there in culture, they know that people who have lives that are, have their, their priorities in proper order, it tends to have beneficial effects in their lives. And the same is, is true even more so in the Christian life. And in order to get your priorities right, you will have to, at times, to consider your ways. To regularly consider your ways in light of what God teaches us in Scripture. In other words, make the Bible your daily mirror that you see yourself through. Believers are to consider God first in all their ways and obey. And brothers and sisters, that's the big idea today. Believers are to consider God first in all their ways and obey. Let's close our time together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for the gathering here. Thank you very much for your, your word and for the testimony of Haggai and the example that this book lays out for us. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to be in your word regularly and to be assessing our ways honestly before you in the quietness of our hearts through your word. And we ask that you would do that to help us to accomplish that in order to become more and more like Jesus, your son. And it's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.